AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. Well, today we're joined by Max Nesterak. He is the deputy editor of the Minnesota Reformer, as we're going to be talking about some of the news of the day, what's happening at the Minnesota legislature, and some of the articles that they're working on over at the Reformer. Max, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it. Always happy to come on. Absolutely. So let's start off with some big news, at least at the national level, where a, a Texas judge basically ruled that the abortion, the abortion pool, the abortion pill rather, did not properly get USDA approval. So how could this Texas judge's ruling impact us here in Minnesota? Are we seeing new bills being proposed by lawmakers to protect access to the abortion pill? Because this is kind of complicated in terms of how this ruling could impact us here in Minnesota, correct? It is complicated. You know, it's important to note that Attorney General Keith Ellison signed on to a lawsuit uh, order that um, led to a ruling out of Washington State just uh, hours after uh, the Texas ruling judge beginning Mifepristone, um, ordering the FDA to keep the status quo and not um, and not restrict access to Mifepristone, which is the first of a two-part drug series uh, used to terminate pregnancies. And so that Washington state judge ruled that the 17 states and D.C. who joined on to this lawsuit, um, the FDA shouldn't restrict access in those states. And Minnesota is one of them because Attorney General Keith Ellison uh, joined that lawsuit. I think it would probably be a different story if his Republican opponent, Jim Schultz, had been elected. So Right now, we have these two competing, um, one from a Washington state judge, one from a Texas judge. Uh, the Texas judge stayed his own ruling until Friday. So, um, so it wouldn't have gone, it wouldn't go into effect anywhere until then. So we'll see what happens. I'm hearing that because of all the confusion, um, and the competing orders, this is going to get fast tracked to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, who'll make a decision. But as of right now, um, the abortion uh, prescription mifepristone is still available uh, to Minnesotans who need it. Um, and I should also note that, like I said, it's the first of a two-part drug series. Abortions can still be performed with that second uh, pill, although it can it, it carries higher risks of side effects like diarrhea and nausea. Well, you brought up an interesting point just a few moments ago talking about last year's attorney general's race in Minnesota because, correct me if I'm wrong, but if the Republican Jim Schultz had won that election instead of the DFL or Keith Ellison, uh, good chance Schultz would not have signed on to that lawsuit in Washington. And if Ellison was not the AG, there's a good chance that this uh, pill could have – or the abortion pill potentially could be – could have been banned in Minnesota if Schultz was the AG instead of instead of Ellison, I think that's an interesting uh, distinction to make, being that uh, if that lawsuit had not been signed on to, it could be a very different situation here in the state. Right, and it was the closest race, you know, of, of all the statewide elections. Um, Keith Ellison kind of barely uh, squeaked out a victory. Um, and, and Jim Schultz, he, he served on the board of an anti-abortion group that, um, you know, we've reported on spread debunked claims that, uh, abortion increases the risk of brain, breast cancer and so forth. So um, I find it very unlikely that uh, Schultz, who was on the board of directors for Human Life Alliance, would have signed on to this lawsuit. 
Yeah, it's an interesting aspect to look at in this story, uh, just showing that, of course, elections do have major consequences, especially at the state and the local level. Well, after a one-week break, the Minnesota State Legislature is back in session as we move on to some other news. And they already do have some budget agreements reached already. But I am curious, Max, what else could the legislature possibly be working on in the coming weeks? What kind of timeline could we be looking at with, of course, that close of session being a little bit later on in May? Right. So it's it's possible that they, they end session early, which I think is going to take a lot of people by surprise. I, you know, I'll, I'll come out and say that I was not optimistic that unified government would necessarily mean a more efficient government. You know, there's always um, uh, disagreements among Democrats, and I thought that Democrats would still have trouble, um, you know, hammering out all of their differences. Um, but they've really pushed beyond uh, deadlock and just moved at a very rapid pace. So we're hearing, we're coming back, we're hearing all these major budget bills. And so there's a lot of little things in there. These bills are huge. It's, it's hard to digest um, all of them. So we're doing our best to kind of dig in and find out what's in there that nobody else is, is reporting on. So this is going to take up a lot of time um, over the next month to uh, debate these bills and, uh, you know, hear amendments and, and dig into what other kind of policy items are in there. Because even though they're budget bills, um, there's lots of policy in there or new programs getting funded. So it's really interesting work happening. Well, talking about some other news at the state legislature, I want to focus on an article that you wrote last week that focused on cities and counties trying to raise sales taxes around the state of Minnesota. Because cities and counties all over Minnesota are putting through a record number of requests for sales tax hikes to fund projects like parks, community centers, jails, road improvements, and more. Basically kind of the projects you would think of uh, local cities and counties funding. However, there is a catch when cities and counties try raising sales taxes. They actually need the approval of the Minnesota State Legislature as well as the local voters in that district. Now, normally these requests breeze through the legislature pretty quickly with bipartisan support and are largely rubber-stamped. But that's a little bit different this year because DFL Representative Aisha Gomez wants to put a pause on these saying that they are unfair to lower-income people. Now, Max, we'll dive into what Aisha is talking about with this being unfair to lower-income people. But before we get into that, what is the motivation behind this record number of requests for sales tax hikes by lawmakers in their districts? Is there a reason why we're seeing so many of these types of requests from cities and counties to raise sales taxes to fund projects? Well, I I think there's a a couple different reasons. One is that uh, funding that the state provides to cities and counties, which is called local government aid, aid, um, hasn't kept pace with inflation or local budgets in years. So that's led mainly to uh, raise property taxes or else forego, you know, building the community centers or police stations or fire stations or or jails that they, they wanted to. Um, another thing that happened is, is in the last, in recent years, these sales taxes have actually been very successful at passing. Voters have overwhelmingly approved them. And so I think a lot of cities and counties have looked at that and said, all right, well, we probably have a pretty good chance of, of winning if we bring this to, to voters. So this year, there's been about three dozen 
uh, requests from cities and counties, mostly from cities, uh, requesting sales taxes, sales tax increases ranging from, you know, a quarter percent to a whole 1% in St. Paul. Um, these would go out for anything from, you know, a, a public safety center, a correctional facility, or, or in St. Paul's case, to fund uh, street improvements and parks and rec uh, facilities. So uh, a whole host of uh, public services that uh, cities are hoping to raise revenue uh, for. And what's interesting, too, is that these generally are pretty popular with lawmakers, not just at the legislature, but also the local level, because one of the reasons why sales taxes are an easy sale to the public, and it's interesting you wrote about this, is that, well, you can kind of sell it to voters as being, well, most of those taxes are probably going to be paid for people that live outside the district, when you think about people that are maybe coming into a city and county and shopping at a retail place, so they're, of course, spending money and being taxed on that. So that does kind of make it a selling point for a number of these local districts is that you can say, well, well, most people that are going to be paying for this don't even live where you are. Right, absolutely. You know, St. Paul is doing this in their, um, you know, pamphlet explaining why St. Paul is asking for this. They say, look, if you're a St. Paul resident, you're you're subsidizing all the people who come in um, and drive on our roads to St. Paul to visit the Capitol, to work downtown, to visit stores along Grand Avenue. Um, and through your property taxes, you're funding for all that road repair. Sales tax is going to be a fair way of um, having everyone who uses St. Paul streets and enjoys uh, St. Paul's um, amenities to chip in and help fund road repair and parks and, um, and those sorts of things. So, uh, absolutely. You know, in Edina, this was a big pitch to uh, Edina residents, and they raised a uh, half percent sales tax. Is that there's a lot of people who come in from out of town or out, outside of Edina to shop here. So, um, you know, it's a it's a great ra- way to raise revenue off uh, someone else's uh, voters. Basically, that's what uh, Representative Steve Elkins of Bloomington said. He says, you know, when you're putting when when lawmaker, local lawmakers put this to voters, what they're really asking for is permission to tax other voters um, or, or other lawmakers' voters, if that makes sense. Well, and that does kind of lead to, well, my next question with some concerns with Representative Aisha Gomez, the DFLer from Minneapolis, who has some concerns about the legislature continuing to approve these local sales tax hikes for cities and counties around the state. She brings up a number of points, including the fact that, well, it could be kind of a bias towards cities and counties that have a large retail base. So what are some of her concerns about kind of putting a pause on some of these requests for raising sales taxes around uh, different cities and counties in Minnesota? Yeah, well, like like you said, you know, Isha Gummer, she's a progressive. She comes from Minneapolis. And so in a way, it's kind of unexpected that this resistance is coming from her, both because her district has a very strong retail base to raise sales tax revenue, um, and also uh, she's a you know a tax and spend Democrat. She she wants to provide um, more government services to people, but her point is that our we have a tradition in Minnesota of equalizing. Um, the wealth in the state and the economic activity across the state. And that goes back to um, legislation in the 1970s, which was dubbed the Minnesota Miracle, uh, where the state, you know, has higher income um, and sales taxes, which it 
takes in collectively, and then it redistributes it across the other state and across the state. So this is a boon for you know people in rural communities who don't have the Mall of America or Lake Street or downtown Minneapolis, who don't have those big commercial centers to raise sales tax revenue from. And so Gomez's point is that this is um, this is this cuts against that tradition of you know equalizing. Uh, prosperity across the entire state. The, the other reason she thinks this is um, bad policy is because sales taxes inherently are regressive. They are uh, they place a higher burden on low income people because it just it makes up a larger uh, percentage of of their overall income. Um, but on the counter side, there are people aggressives who have argued, well, sales taxes can actually be good because uh, rich people consume more and therefore pay a lot more into these taxes. So if you're using these taxes to fund something like uh, housing or um, or public transit, something that uh, low-income people could really use, use more, then it, it actually comes out in, um, it ends up being a progressive uh, policy decision. You can read more about that over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com. I encourage you to check that out because it's uh, something that could impact you in your pocketbook every day if you see those sales taxes getting uh, raised in your city or county. So it's an interesting read to see how this uh, process kind of works in Minnesota. Final uh, piece of news to talk about with you, Max. We'll briefly uh, touch on this, but this has to do with Mary Ellen Ritter's piece that she wrote titled Minnesota's Nurses Fear for the Future of Healthcare." Of course, being a nurse is a very difficult position, not just in Minnesota, but around the entire country, with nurses being asked to do more than ever. There's been uh, cases of, well, what nurses kind of call like moral injury and the fact that the job is very morally taxing. So I'm curious, uh, Max, this was a good article, uh, certainly written by Mary, talking about uh, how nurses are going through a lot of struggles right now. And it sounds like they at least do have the attention of some members of the legislature in terms of trying to, well, make things a little bit easier on nurses. Right. Yeah. So this is something that we've we've written a lot about, you know, leading um, through that whole year last year of uh, uh, fights between the nurses union, and, nurses union, and uh, seven of the state's largest health systems, uh, leading to that uh, three-day strike, the largest uh, private sector nurses strike in U.S. history. So, you know, they're bringing their demands to have a greater say in staffing levels to the state legislature, and what they're saying is they want nurses um, to be on committees that. Uh, can decide what is an acceptable patient staffing ratio um, for each unit in a hospital. And they say this is going to help ease the staffing shortage that is so severe because they say the reason there's not enough nurses is because there's not enough nurses who are willing to work under the conditions um, that they have to in hospitals right now. So it's become a vicious cycle where they say because of management decisions to try and cut costs and run on a skeleton crew that's driven out uh, nurses who get burned out and it becomes then a cycle of nurses don't want to stick around because it's short staffed and then you're short staffed because you don't have enough nurses. So they say by setting this floor, this requirement, um, uh, 
for staffing levels at, at, across each unit. It's not going to be, you know, a one-size-fits-all for all hospitals. Um, but they say that that'll help draw nurses into the profession and keep nurses at the bedside. And that's the name of the bill is keeping nurses at the bedside. We'll read more about that. Mary Ellen Ritter's piece titled Minnesota's Nurses Fear for Their Future of Healthcare over at MinnesotaReformer.com. Again, MinnesotaReformer.com. We have been speaking with Max Nesterak. He is the deputy editor of the Minnesota Reformer. Again, the website one more time, MinnesotaReformer.com. Max, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's take a break and send things back over to Matt McNeil on AM 950. Yeah, man.